You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Today we have a very exciting team of computer scientists and biologists from Western. Professors Kathleen Hill, Leela Kari, and graduate students Gurjeet Randhawa and Max Solshak cracked the genomic signature of COVID-19, officially confirming that the disease originates from bats. To do this, They utilized machine learning to create a new data discovery tool that will allow researchers to easily classify a deadly virus, such as COVID-19, in a mere matter of minutes. They came onto the podcast to talk about their groundbreaking research and the importance it could have in the future. Here we go. All right, why don't we start by having everyone introduce themselves and explain what their role was within this research. Kathleen, why don't you start? So in this particular group, I think one of the major roles is to be a mentor, to be a teacher, to be available, and to be listening. So it's to contribute uh, knowledge about genomes and their sequence information. And I'm very interested in how genomes change and how they're related to one another. Okay, great. Gurjeet? So I'm a computer scientist. So my goal is, uh, my role here is uh, to look for interesting problems and then uh, apply uh, my uh, programming uh, skills to develop uh, these tools, uh, software development, and uh, then draw conclusions, uh, which Max can verify later with his biological knowledge. Leela? Uh, I am a computer scientist and uh, I, shoulder to shoulder with Kathleen, have been uh, for a long time now on the quest on the, of the ultimate universal method that can attach a numerical quantity to DNA and use that in order to exactly classify it and compare it. So uh, in this particular study, uh, Gurjit, my PhD student and I were the computational side of the team who together worked for the methodology design and the software design uh, in order to tackle the problem of COVID-19 virus classification. Right. And you're at Waterloo, correct? I'm at Waterloo, yeah. So you're so, the first... Uh, I, I was at Western for 20 plus years. So okay. Gurdjieff, my student, it's still at Western. I'm still a junk professor at Western. But currently, I'm a professor uh, at University of Waterloo. Okay. I was going to say, you're the first non-Western affiliated guest on the podcast. No, I am Western you're affiliated alumni. and I'm true to Western. <laughs> and I'm, I'm faithful to Western. Okay. Good. We cleared that up. Max? Great. So I'm a, I'm a resident biologist kind of with this, and I help take the, a lot of the previous work and literature and how uh, put our results into a greater biological context and how it relates to this previous work and greater evolutionary context. So Henry, you'll have to keep in mind it's a genome and that it's RNA as opposed to DNA. Yes. It's very easily, you know, downloaded as DNA, treated as DNA, uh, but biologically when we start out it's an rna sequence so explain to the average viewer what rna really means then so they might think about dna and they might think of four letter alphabet of an a a t a c and a g 
But in this case, viruses uh, can be RNA sequences. So instead of a T, you would think of a U, we would think of uracil. And it, in, in us, we would have RNA sequences and they code for proteins. And there are viruses that don't need you know, to be DNA to be viruses. So those sequences are four letter alphabets and computationally those four letters can become other representations. We can make them into the, the typical ones and zeros that computers like, or we can make those, in, what we do is make them into images. The idea is that just keeping in mind that the virus being RNA as opposed to DNA, but being the same you know, in terms of the number of letters in an alphabet. So we can take it and easily treat it like DNA and combine it with things that are DNA when we're doing the analyses. So I think a lot of it, first of all, is observation and asking a lot of questions. And right now, obviously, there is something out there that we don't know a lot about, but we do need to know a lot about. So with regards to the recent findings, Gurji, can you tell the story of how you got the wheels spinning on this research? Uh, yeah, so it was uh, second week of uh, January when uh, I was uh, reading the news and uh, uh, it was like Chinese scientists, they successfully sequenced uh, this genome of COVID-19 virus and uh, they made it uh, publicly available. Uh, so I was curious enough uh, to see how we can contribute. Uh, can we have something there? Can we uh, just explore it or look for something? Uh, so I was uh, uh, from my curiosity. Uh, what I did is uh, I did, uh, ran some tests overnight. I got uh, some amazing preliminary results. I was so excited uh, to share. Like uh, we, we have something and uh, we, we are definitely contributing because uh, uh, we are correctly classifying it uh, and with so much uh, accuracy and with uh, so much speed. So I shared uh, the results early in the morning with the rest of my team members, my colleagues, uh, so that this is definitely we should look into uh, and we should uh, expand it further and uh, th this is uh, how it all started right and leela how does one input something such as the coronavirus into machine learning so what we need is uh, the sequenced genome so we were very much dependent on this uh, very nice aspect of the covid-19 virus research that uh, researchers made the data about the sequence of the virus publicly available and once we have that, then this is all we need as an input. We can use the, the DNA sequence of the genome as an input for the uh, alignment-free classification to determine the genomic signature of the virus and then use that genomic signature in order to train the machine learning algorithm and then predict it, train it on existing database of viruses and then predict the, the label or the taxonomic classification of the COVID-19 virus. So what does that sample of the virus look like? Well, what we were uh, uh, basing this data on uh, was on the publicly available sequence of the virus that was obtained by biologists okay. or medical doctors in their labs. So that they, they did all this process, uh, yeah. but they published the sequences and we took these uh, sequences, which is just like a, you know, like a 30 plus thousand letter long DNA sequence, ACGT, GGG, CCTG, and so on. And then that's all we need for our computational experiments. Right. So we use, we use real data, not simulated data. What might surprise us about the makeup of COVID-19? Kathleen. So if we back up for a bit, the, the virus would have an RNA sequence. 
And I think people are very fascinated at looking at the components of it. In our work, we don't actually look at the things that it's coding for. I mean, there'll be other people that will figure out how that sequence is coding for various components. The, the parts that we're most fascinated with is the sequentiality, the composition of the letters of its particular genome. And the things that were fascinating to the students and to us is their nature, how they're put together. It's not a, a random assortment of these letters, but they will have patterns that we can actually illustrate. We could show you pictures of and the manuscript did, and then we can compare it to how the sequences are arranged in close relatives and distantly related relatives of that sequence. Max, how much of an eye are you keeping on other groups' literature and data while you're in the midst of trying to confirm that coronavirus originates from bats? Right. So uh, it was pretty interesting when it first came out, when uh, people had ideas of where it came from, uh, specifically regarding its origin, and uh, obviously a lot of uh, news coverage on, for example, the wet market and whatnot. But uh, when we were first uh, classifying it based on sequences, coronavirus is a... Uh, it's a broad, the coronaviridae is a broad family and it has uh, many different types of coronaviruses. Some infect birds, some infect mammals. A lot of them tend to infect bats. Uh, when we first did our analyses, uh, other groups were saying as well that uh, it looks like this could be from bats. So when we were doing our first analyses and we were seeing what coronaviruses it was related to, um, it, it was pretty interesting and it was great that it was aligning with what other people were saying as well. Um, and from the literature, I originally, when we, when Gurjeet first messaged me and saying, hey, do you want to help with this? I was like, yeah, I want, want to help with it. I uh, had to read every single preprint on COVID-19 that was out at the time. And obviously that was expanding exponentially, like every single day that it passed on. So I think by the time we finally started writing, uh, the amount of articles was just blew out of proportion. But from those articles, we found that different groups independently found that three specific strains of coronavirus were important in the analysis. Um, uh, two of them start with a Z, and another one is RATG13. Uh, and initially, we didn't have those in our analyses, and then we had to try and dig and find where those sequences were from so we could include them, and they ended up being uh, extremely influential on the results. Um, and the fact that all these other groups are also independently coming to that conclusion means that these sequences are important. And that's kind of what uh, what was really interesting about this analysis and how closely related these three sequences are and how other groups are independently coming to the same results with different data. It's just, for example, we can do it within five minutes without any genes or anything like that. Something really unique about this situation is how much news about it there is out there, but how little is actually known. So when you're digging through articles, how do you choose which ones you're really going to focus on or take on board with you and which ones you kind of disregard? Right. And that, that's a big golden question that everyone's having to deal with at the time. It's preprints are so, so important, uh, especially with rapidly evolving science. And with a pandemic and there's a need for a lot of this research to be accelerated, a lot of the time we have to keep in mind that preprints haven't been peer reviewed yet. So just because it's a preprint doesn't mean it's good science. Uh, and what results that we trust and which results can we cite, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a gray area. You got to do a little bit digging into the methodology. And when you start reading some of these papers, a lot of the initial preprints were extremely short. There were like three paragraphs and a single statement saying, we should focus on this. And it's like, what kind of 
what does that paper, like preprint or paper bring to the table? It, it, oftentimes it's not much. So digging a lot of the time when we were digging through the preprints, while a lot of the results could be important, but because they weren't peer reviewed yet, you don't really know what to trust. A lot of the time we were taking a lot of their data and trying to see if we can use their data, less so their results, but more so the sequences and the data that they were saying important is, okay, if you say this is important and we include this in our data and we find the same conclusion, but we can get more out of that uh, preprint and paper other than just taking it for face value, but actually incorporating their data into our own analyses and figuring out on our own independently, can we trust this? Uh, is this looking good? But it, it's definitely tricky, especially uh, as it went from three papers to five papers to 20 papers to 60 papers to 120 papers. How many of those are actually important and how many of those can we kind of trust uh, prior to this peer review? Yeah, there's such an opportunity to, to gain notoriety as a scientist right now. It's, it's got to be tough to dig through all that. Gurji, can you touch on just how expansive and powerful the computational methods you're deploying are? That's the beauty of our method. It's really, really fast. So comparing to other methods, if you say analyze these thousands of genomes on uh, using alignment-based method, it'll at least take a few hours, uh, maybe days. Uh, we can do under uh, two, three minutes. That's a very big uh, achievement uh, computationally. So uh, we are very light on computational side. Uh, we don't, because we are just using sequences, uh, we don't need uh, uh, much computational power at our end. And uh, it can be done on any average computer at your home wow. uh, within a few minutes. And uh, software is open source, publicly available. Uh, data is publicly available, so you can download, run on your system, uh, get the same results. I believe your paper notes that there are 25 different DNA sequences currently associated with coronavirus. How different is one sequence from the other? At time of our study, we used uh, like all 29 uh, complete genomes available till that date. Uh, but as of now, there are more than 30,000 uh, sequences oh available. Uh, so it's uh, expanding uh, with the uh, like pandemic rising. Uh, so every country is now sequencing and they are adding uh, thousands of sequences every week. So it's still ongoing. Among those 29, uh, they were very, very similar. Uh, more than 99% similarity in, within those 29 sequences. Kathleen, you look like you're itching to hop in here for a second. The 30,000 number is up to date as of today, but also they're averaging, uh, they're tracking one mutation every two weeks, according to a webinar earlier this week with Can COVID. So they're tracking how much it actually changes. Wow. That's sort of an average that could be, that'll have variation. And we're really watching science unfold. It's not an experiment that had a design is being carried out and you get to see the results. You're watching a very dynamic process. So when you make interpretations, they're sort of dynamic as well. Yeah, it's an ophthalmologist's dream, I imagine. It's a teacher's dream. I, people at Western should know that this community will be teaching based on this example with students learning experiential learning in the fall. They will be given or choose their own cases like this and follow it along. Right. And there were classes last year that actually were using these genome sequences and trying some of these methods. So it'll be fun to be doing things that are live, 
you know, actual real world problems and trying to participate as we go. On that subject of teaching, we've never been forced to create a cure for coronavirus in the past. Will it be easier to solve COVID-19 if we become familiar with prior iterations of the virus? I could try that one, but I wondered if Max, I'd been pondering that question, if you wanted to try it as well. I have a solution, but I'm curious to hear Max first yeah, or somebody else. Sir Max. As we saw previously, well, when I was just a kid and barely thinking at all, with the SARS, the original SARS uh, epidemic and how that really influenced the world, uh, there was a lot of work going into a vaccine development for SARS. And uh, well, when SARS no longer became as big an issue as it uh, previously was thought to be, a lot of the funding, for example, towards vaccine development was kind of cut off. And the, a lot of the progress that worked towards creating a SARS vaccine kind of uh, tapered off a little bit. But uh, similar to other related viruses, a lot of the work that we did with the original SARS pandemic and SARS uh, vaccine development was used as a head start on the development of a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. So while it, a lot of the, while it's not really simpler because the SARS uh, epidemic was, was dangerous and it was uh, taken very seriously, uh, a lot of the work that previously was done, and because SARS-CoV-2 slash COVID-19 is related to SARS, a lot of that work that was done could already be used as a head start. And a lot of the information, for example, with the spike proteins, its replication, its a lot of its effects on the human body, for example, we had a little bit of a knowledge base we could go off of. If there was, for example, a novel adenovirus or something else along those lines where we don't necessarily have as much information on, it would take a lot longer and a lot more work in order to get where we are now. So a lot of these previous iterations and previous versions that we've had to deal with helped, for example, with all the research we're doing and where we can base our new progress and new work on. When we spoke before, you all made it very clear that this project is nowhere near the finish line. So, Leela, why don't you tell us what's next and how specific can our understanding of the virus become? So, uh, if I were to veer off the question a little bit here, I think that uh, in our method, uh, as a mathematician and computer scientist like me and Gurjit are, I think that the most uh, interesting aspect, besides being super fast, which is really very important when time is of the essence, but besides that, I think that the most interesting aspect of this research is, uh, of this method is, is universality, if I may use that word with a grain of salt, in the sense that now we have like an off-the-shelf tool that we can apply for anything at any moment in time, as is with no modification, and we get an answer. So rather than, you know, you have a new thing, you have to find the genes, the proteins, compare it and so on. So there is lots of uh, biological work that has to be done. This is SS, no modification whatsoever. And you can compare and find out the relatedness uh, literally between anything and anything, between real genomes, synthetic genomes, uh, computer generated genomes, uh, whatever, you know, you, you random your cat walking on the keyboard genomes, anything you want. You can, as long as it's a sequence of DNA or RNA, you can compare it and place it in sort of the tree of life, so to speak, and find out what it is. So mm -hmm. I think that as a mathematician, I found this sort of deeply satisfying that instead of uh, every case having a particular solution, here you have a one, one size fits all solution ready to deploy at any time for the future. So from my point of view, this is sort of the most exciting part. Is it fair to say that ultimately the legacy of this research is that we'll be more prepared in the future? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then at least you don't have to wait for three months for the peer review. <laughs> now we can do it in the, in the first day and be done with it as opposed to waiting for the validation of the method itself. If, if I were a researcher looking to create a vaccine now, how might I deploy your findings? So step one, I think you want it super early. So if you know there's a problem and you know it's a pathogen, you're going to want to assemble the circumstantial evidence of biologically what you think that pathogen is. And you're going to want to deploy this as quickly as possible because it's not what Gurjeet and Leela and these folks have developed that's gonna take a long time. It's gonna be you assembling that and then running it through because within minutes, you're going to have an answer, but you need to put in the right information. And then you wanna do it very early on. And then if you're the vaccine type, the therapy type, the diagnostic type, it's gonna be that closest neighbor you find and doing that properly that then gives you all the wealth of biology, all of that information that's associated with that closest classification. So you want to do it early and you want to write at the scene of knowing you have that pathogen. You want all of the circumstantial material of what it is. So saying virus, sequence, go MLDSP. That, I think that might be the answer. Ten years down the road, where would you like to see this research being utilized? I think everybody has something imaginative. I say take it to the classroom. I say put it in the hands of users. I have uh, recruited I, an uncountable a number of students this summer to practice, try, find problems. And then I go into my lab and find crazy amounts of data and ask if we can start applying it. Can, can it somehow help us? classify disease types something else of interest for me well i just want to quickly express my gratitude for everyone making time for me today this is a wicked cool podcast for me to do and i'm excited to see what else comes from this research over this summer and beyond so thank you all wow we thank have you. a fascinating <laughs> meeting we're going to convene right after we exit your zoom i'm going to tell these people i'm going to issue another zoom because we have an important deadline for the next project all right well enjoy that thank you okay thank you that concludes another episode of western science speaks thanks to the team for coming on if you're interested in reading more about their research, they're getting a lot of press at the moment, and deservedly so. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts, and make sure you stay up to date with the latest research and conversations from Western Science. Next week, we'll be airing a special best of featuring five really interesting interviews over the years pertaining to health sciences. You can catch that exclusively on streaming services, so make sure you subscribe. In the meantime, I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.